Welcome, everybody, to the Uncommon Deeds podcast. Tom Corbett, Justin St. Louis. We have a good one for you this week as we are getting set for a little bit of a holiday break. We will not have an episode next week as Justin is headed to OHIO, but we will hopefully have a pop-up video for you on YouTube for next week. But, yeah, we're taking the... uh, Christmas week off, and then we will be back. Plus, Tom's dead right now, so. But I am faking it fantastic. Yeah, you sound fine, but you're not fine. It is a very fake. I don't We hit record, and I don't know how I'm doing it, but I'm making it sound somewhat like me. Uh, but, yeah, we have uh, had the nice fluey sicknesses going through our house for better part of a week and it finally uh caught up with me poor little guy where are you right now are you in your bed no i'm on the couch oh but the couch kind of pulls out and so i can put stuff in front of me and there's pillows and blankets everywhere yeah it looks it looks comfy sure but it's one of those where I've been laying down for the better part of probably 24 hours, and my body just hurts from laying down that much. But then when I stand up, I want to vomit. Nurse, turn me. <sighs> Izzy is sick, and Rowan is sick, and Rowan won't take medicine. and But... I would guess it's better now, beginning of the week, than later in the week. I am synonymous with getting sick with the flu on Christmas Day. Really? I think it's happened literally five times. Whoa. Since I was like 22. Come on. True story. It's very consistent. I want to feel, I, I think it was the twins' first Christmas, too. I was a hot mess that day. Oh, boy. I'm, like, crawling around the floor. <laughs> and then also feeling incredible guilt because I'm not playing with my kids on their first Christmas. And and it's not happened good. again since then. And, yeah, for whatever reason. Yeah, I think five times I've gotten sick with the flu on Christmas Day. Like th- three or four years in a row. This is probably TMI. Uh, like three or four years in a row, I got diarrhea <laughs> on the on the anniversary of my father's passing and this year I didn't get it. My daughter got it. (laughs) So I was happy that it's finally, it's finally jumped, jumped a generation. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It's Uh, the gift from the great beyond. Yeah. 
And man, moving into today's episode, because we're going to keep this fairly short and sweet as Tom's time is limited. It is limited. And I'm supposed to record tomorrow night with Sterling and the next night for no fouls. So hopefully we take a nice swing here after tonight. Lord. Uh, but no, this week's episode, when you originally reached out, you did not know that this was going to be kind of a bigger deal than it was. Yeah, I had uh, wanted to reach out to Dave Kamara. Um, I don't know. The idea had popped into my head a while ago, and I finally did. It was before Thanksgiving anyway. It was well before Thanksgiving, and he's a busy guy and had stuff lined up. And he said, let's do either this date or this date. And um, this past Saturday was the date that worked for everybody. And in that time, uh, between setting up the date and recording, he uh, struck a deal to get out of retirement and start racing again next year. And um, it just happened to, I guess our timing was, was good. So we're the, we're the first interview he's done since his last race in 2009 or 10 or whatever it was. Mm. And it's funny because it's always the dirt guys. And I think it just shows of the people we talk to that the dirt guys are a little more social media savvy because they always give away that they're coming on the show. It's true. It's true. <laughs> yep. Not that we're doing guest the guests anymore, but no, but we like to be the ones to let you know. And that, but the, I'm, I'm not complaining at all. It's cool that we get the shares and the tags and all that stuff. And there's new eyeballs on this. I mean, there's a lot of asphalt people who don't know who Dave Kamara is. And there's a lot of dirt people who don't know what on uncommon deeds is. So um, I'm totally happy that, he kind of let the cat out of the bag five, six days early. Yeah. Um, and we got to build it up a little bit. So that's good. Yeah. Anybody that wants to put in the work to help us spread the word, we welcome. That's right. Uh, and and if you are a new listener, thank you for tuning in and um, go back and check out some of the old episodes. And there's going to be some people that you know, and there's going to be some people that you don't. And um, I encourage you to listen to the people that you don't know because they're they're funny. They're there's good racing stories that it doesn't matter if you're dirt or asphalt, if you're going to a racetrack, something stupid's gonna happen with your crew at some point. And uh we love those stories and we get a lot of them here. So check that out and um hopefully come back next week. Or well Two not weeks. next week because we don't have a They'll next come episode. back to our YouTube page yeah, next week. There you go. <laughs> as that is the plan for a, right. another pop up video to come out next Tuesday. And then we are uh Climbing towards episode 100. Mm-hmm. And we've got some ideas we're tinkering with. Um, you got a response from somebody who you've been trying for about two years mm-hmm. to get a response from. And it is a big name. And we don't know whether we want to do a podcast. We might do a, a video thing. Justin's got a great idea for maybe a little documentary thing we might do. Um, We got other names. We might hit a road trip for episode 100. So just keep paying attention because we got stuff coming. Yeah, kind of um, like we could throw a dart at a dartboard right now with a bunch of different ideas, and they're they're all pretty cool. We just don't know which one's going to stick first, right? Right. Yeah. So we will see. 
hopefully, a lot of you are, as you're listening to this, hopefully have already gotten your merch, your Christmas merch. We got some that just went out. Uh, apologies hey. there. We just ran out of shipping materials, which was a poor plan on our part. We well, didn't realize how little where we were at, and but those yeah. are headed out, so hopefully everyone still gets gets their stuff. I, I believe that, uh, you know, we sent the last round out today as you're listening, as the show comes out live on t- on Tuesday. Um, so everybody should have stuff by Christmas. Today is the cutoff date for you. Yeah, basically all the carriers, USPS, UPS, FedEx, all that stuff. It doesn't matter who it is. Um, you should have it barring any tornadoes. Um, but yeah, uh, we were overwhelmed with orders and that's a good thing. You know, running out of shipping materials is not a problem we've ever had before. So yeah, my bad for not stocking up, but, uh, I didn't expect to run out either. So yeah, but like you said, hopefully everyone's still going to get it. Not too late in terms of you guys can still order, the Beaver Dragon shirt, but they won't be shipped for probably a month or so. Right. Yep. We do have lots of uh, Uncommon Deeds stock as well and the the UDP flag design. We do have a few, just a handful of the Beaver Dragon shirts left as like an overstock as well. Um, maybe not all sizes, but um, you can order anytime. And like Tom said, it'll be most likely about a month before like a beaver dragon shirt would get made and, and be shipped to you. But um, lots of the other stuff we have on hand. Yeah. And hopefully kind of like we did with the first round, man, send us some pictures. We want to see you guys with especially mm-hmm. the beaver merch. Yep. And I know he's excited about it. So let's, uh, let's show him some love with the merch. I'm going up to going up to see him tomorrow to drop off a load of merch. So that'll be cool. Yeah. And and Brent got the one large tall shirt that we had to order. Makes sense. Yeah. Before we get into today's episode, we want to make sure we thank the people who help us bring this show to you for free every single week. Barry Tile, Morrison Clark, they're about as OG as it gets with not only the Uncommon Deeds, podcast but man racing in vermont and thunder road and they've been around for a long time and their work shows it they've got the experience and they put together some unbelievable projects that you can check out on their facebook page yeah or stop right into the showroom on uh, the south Barry road and check them out man they've been they've been at it for 50 years coming up on 51 and uh if it's tile that you need in your kitchen or your bathroom or whatever, a uh, backsplash or a bathtub or a shower or new sinks, countertops, they do that. They do hardwood flooring. They do carpeting. They do whatever you can dream of. Um, it is top-notch stuff with smart people doing it, doing it. And, you know, they actually care about what they're doing. <laughs> you know, this isn't Lowe's. This is uh a local business with wow shots family. fired Lowe's. Yeah, that's right. I did it. I went there, uh, but this is a, a family owned business with their name on the line. Yeah. And uh, not, 
moving on, I think I saw another storm coming through on Friday this week. Yeah. Yep. And though right now it looks like warm and all rain all day, at least here in Colchester, which is depressing that it's just going to wipe out. And we got little snow as it was in last week's. We're like the only people. Like Justin got a foot of snow. My dad in Williamstown got like two feet of snow, and we got like three inches maybe. <laughs> so that was a bummer. But with another storm coming, you want to be prepared in case you lose the power. And coming up after that storm on Friday, it looks like it's going to get real cold, real frigid, and you do not want to get caught without power when it's you know 20 degrees or less. So Saturday in the middle of that storm with that wet, heavy snow. And yeah, we got about, we got just over a foot here in Bridport and the lights flickered and the clock started flashing. And I thought to myself, this is what Tom and I talk about every friggin' week on this show. Oh. And one of these times it's going to bite me that I don't have a generator. Um, the guy I need to call is Ben Bushy, Bushy's generator sales and service Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. This the slogan is we keep your power on. And for God's sake, at some point I need to start listening to that and actually do it. <laughs> and order myself a standby generator because we almost needed one the other night in that snowstorm. Once again, we could not bring this show to you for free every single week and make cool merch and do all the things that we're very fortunate to be able to do and plan things that you don't even know about unless we felt we had the backing of our fantastic sponsor. So show them some love. Go check them out. Facebook, go into their showroom. It's a good time. Good time by all. You got it. And we, we do have some openings, I think, and I'm not trying to put the cart in front of the horse. I think we've got one or two new potential uh, sponsors coming on board in the next few weeks. Um, But there's, plenty of space on this show for everybody and if you want to be involved it's affordable um we you know i think if you're listening to the show you know that we try to do a good job for you and it's fun most of all just like racing you're not going to make a lot of money (laughs) advertising and racing um but you can enjoy the money that you do spend by having some fun with it and you know we're, we're doing all right and if we're being honest our track record has shown that we bring some business yeah. To our sponsors. Yeah. I'm proud of that. Yeah. Not saying, just saying. Yeah. Bring Without further down. ado, as I am struggling to make sentences. By the way, um, this will be the first ever episode that you guys have listened to that has not been edited in any type of way. So uh, if you hear some little things, I apologize. I just... Uh, couldn't pull my head out of the puke bucket today to finish editing. So apologies there, but nevertheless, it's going to be a good listen. So go ahead, Justin, (laughs) and make today's introduction. Okay. This is a guy I can't believe I've never met in my life before, but he is the flash and he is absolutely one of the best local dirt racers uh, that Vermont has ever seen. Vermont hasn't seen a whole lot of him, uh, but he's from here, and uh, my God, he can drive a race car. It's been a long time since he was behind the wheel. 
He is coming back in 2023, and uh, we're going to talk about what got him here, and uh, it's going to be fun here. Uh, Dave Camaro, welcome to Uncommon Deeds. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, we're excited to meet you. <laughs> this is cool. It's uh, It's been a long time since I've done this. Yeah, right on. Well, we start at the beginning, and that is with when you remember motorsports coming into your life. Um, I was probably a young kid. We used to go to, we used to go to Fonda on Saturday nights. Um, we would go to the bowl on Sunday nights. Um, my mom worked at devil's bowl in the concession stand for a while. So I got stuck working in the concession stand for a few years. Um, ventured my way into, um, I think Lorraine Fabian owned it then, um, talked her into let me sell in papers in the pits as I was probably only 10 or 11 years old. So wow. Uh, so this uh, is the, the West Haven years. Yes. Yep. Awesome. Um, was kind of an awe probably back then. Butch Jelly was one of the track favorites. And I used to try to sneak into his bus every once in a while as they were all sitting around drinking beer after the races. And I'd be sitting there on the steps of the bus, listening to the stories before I get kicked out. <laughs> um, and then, uh, obviously, we made our way to Fonda um, on Saturday nights a lot when I was younger, right up to, you know, until I was 20 years old. We went most every weekend. That's it's kind of- interesting that you would go to Fonda. I mean, Fonda's not close. It's it's not no. that far, but it's really not that close either. No. Um, no. And there's a lot of other options to choose from. So what was it about Fonda that you guys loved? Um, my dad went there as a kid, as uh as he got out of high school, him and a bunch of guys in Fairhaven used to go down. Eddie Allen, my dad, there was a whole bunch of them that used to go there every Saturday night. Um, and we used to make our way to Malta on Friday nights. It was, you know, we used to, we traveled a lot. Um, we traveled probably as much when I got, probably about the time I was 16 to 19 years old, we traveled as much. Every race that Jack Johnson went to, we were there. Um, we went to Florida. My dad made his way to Texas two years in a row to watch him down there. Um, every every race that he was at, we pretty much followed him. So that was the Fonda. The Fonda thing was, you know, following him. We made our way to Weedsport, Rolling Wheels, Syracuse, everywhere he raced. We uh, we were there. What was Did it you about? Guys know him? Yeah. Say that again. Go ahead, Tom. No, go ahead. I was gonna say, did you guys did you guys know Jack or were you fans or how did that we, happen? We were just fans um for quite a few years and then um we started going in the pits and we got to meet a few of the guys and we just all became great friends. Um became great friends with his ex wife, Andrea and Ronnie and Natalie, um and, and a lot of his crew guys. What was it about dirt? that was for you and for your dad? Why not travel up to Thunder Road on a Thursday? Um, I don't really know. We never, <clears throat> the only time I can remember venturing to asphalt at all was um, when the dirt cars, the DIRT cars ran on, they had an asphalt series for a couple of years. So we made our way to San Air and, and a few of the um, asphalt tracks back then. But um, I, I don't know. It was just always, it was always dirt tracks. 
man, dirt racing was and is so huge um, in New York State. Um, but I understand why you would have to leave Vermont to go do it, right? Yeah. Because um, if you're from this area where, you know, over on this side of the state where we are, it's Devil's Bowl. Yep. You have to travel two and a half hours to get to Bear Ridge or go to New Hampshire, and there's not much going on over there. No. Um, no. So I guess traveling is kind of your only option, right? We did a lot of traveling. Um, that was kind of our Achilles heel was we had, you know, um, other than Devil's Bowl, we had multiples an hour away. We raced at Granby. That was two and a half hours away. We raced at Fonda, which was two hours. Weed Sport, Rolling Wheels, uh, Middletown, you know, they were all three to four hours. Um, so travel for us was, it was a very common thing. What, how old were you when you started driving? Or And um, how did that come about? Well, I raced... I was always kind of a gearhead, motorhead, so to speak. I had go-karts when I was little, um, snowmobiles. I started racing ATVs. I was probably 15, 15 or 16. I had a couple of buddies that were a little older than I was, and we raced ATVs. We would go to uh, Weird, New Hampshire, over to Sugar Hill. Devil's Bowl raced them at the time. Malta raced them at the time. Um there was a few places around. So we did that for quite a few years. And, um, 19, well, I started in 1990. So in 1989, I guess that fall, um, a couple of my buddies and myself were going to buy a, we actually were going to buy a pro stock from Warren Peace. And I had talked to him quite a few times. Um, and my dad kind of stepped in and said, look, if we're going to, if we're going to go racing, we're going to, we're going to get a hold of Jack. We're going to go about it the right way. Um, and then we just, we basically got together with Jack and approached him with some stuff and he was on board a hundred percent. How was the learning curve kind of at the beginning? Uh, it was tough. Um, you know, I remember the first day I went to Malta for practice. Jack was there with all his crew. He had built me a car. He built me a new car. We bought a new precision motor. Um, which was just specifically for Malta Neville's Bowl back then. And I remember going to the track the first time to uh, practice that I'm thinking to myself, man, I really hope I like this because <laughs> we have put a lot of effort into this so far and we haven't even got to the track. Um, I mean, I just remember, you know, going out and, and my guys and Jack's guys have always busted on me about this, but I went out and made probably 50 laps. Um, Jack drove the car first, and then I made about 50 laps. And, uh, you know, I felt like I was setting a lane speed record. And he pulled me in, and he asked me why I was going so slow. So <laughs> I was kind of like, really? <laughs> um, it, was, it was a steep learning curve, but, you know, knowing the right people makes all the difference in anything you, you do. Um, so just knowing him, we had so many connections with different crew guys, his crew guys, um, Mike Belden, he was one of Jack's crew guys. He, uh, we hired him to go to Malta with us on Friday nights the first year. And, you know, we had complete access to everything that, you know, Jack has ever known, or, you know, Mike was a, he was a veteran crew guy at that time. He went on after that and worked, he was a crew guy for Jeff Gordon for years. Um, with Ray Everham, they were good friends. Yeah, that's so, a pretty good get. Yeah, you know, so knowing the right people certainly makes things a lot easier. 
um, it's still a tough, it's still a tough climb no matter what, but just getting the right information, the right, the first time from the right people makes a huge difference. And a willingness to listen. You know, it, it pays to know that you're not the smartest one in the room. Well, you know, I've kind of always, I've kind of always felt that way. You know, when I started in the Corian business, where we, we mined slate in Fairhaven, um, in 1986, we bought a quarry. I had never run equipment. I'd never drilled and blasted, never kind of done any of that stuff. And basically I learned all of that by listening to a lot of the old timers, a lot of the quarry owners around, um, I don't know. I, I think that's kind of always been one of my go-to things is that I will listen to most anybody um, that is educated about things that I'm interested in. Wait a second. Did you say you bought the, the quarry in 1986? We did. Yep. My dad bought the oh, first Oh, your slate. dad bought it. Okay. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to yeah, say, yeah, because you were 18. Then. Yeah, yeah. I was just okay. graduating <laughs> high school. No, no. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> That's we were always in the slate business, but we never quarried and, and manufactured our own slate. Gotcha. And that year that I graduated, we uh, we purchased our first quarry and started from there. So Camara Slate has been a huge presence in racing, whether you're driving or not. Um, oh sure. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious that you guys are race fans, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, do what you can to support the sport. Yeah. Um, but. It seems like your your web is really really large. Why mm-hmm. why is that? Is it just friendships, or do you have customers? Is it business to business stuff, or or how does this all happen? Oh, a lot of friendships. Um, you know, we we help Matt Shepard. Um, Matt's been good friends of ours way back years ago when Matt drove for Randy Ross. Um, Randy Ross was very good friends of ours, and we became good friends of Matt's. Um, I drove Matt's car. I drove Randy's car a couple times when Matt had to be on the road. Um, I drove for him, I think at Malta once and devil's bowl once for points. Um, we ran the Fonda 200 when one of Randy's cars and, um, Matt was young. He was very young then. And, you know, here he was driving his car on Saturday night and we went to Fonda on Sunday for the 200 and he's crawled under my, you know, the car I'm driving and he's doing all the work on the car. So we have just remained great friends. Um, so we, we still help him out. And um, most of the guys at Devil's Bowl over the years that have had our names on their cars is they've either helped me as a crew guy or um, just, just good friends and always tried to help each other out. Um, because without without friends and people to help out, this racing deal um, wouldn't be half the size that it is, honestly. Amen. Looking at that early part, the beginning of your career, can you think of a moment that stands out to you where it was a real confidence builder, where you thought, okay, we're headed in the right direction? Um. We, we left CBRA my first year. We really, there was 50 modifieds on a Friday night at, at uh, Albany, Saratoga every Friday. And I think we went the first six weeks. Um, we couldn't qualify. Um, so we ventured north to Frogtown and Cornwall, which they ran small blocks back then. Um, but the caliber of guys, they, they had a couple guys where Malta, you know, you had 15 guys that could win any night. Um, so we went up there and became friends with a few of the guys, Doug Carlisle, um, 
it was uh, Pat O'Brien, Danny O'Brien. We became friends with those guys. And we started getting towards the end of my first season, we were competitively running top fives. Um, and, and we were just a little bit more competitive, a little bit more competitive. And um, we went to Frogtown. The, the, it was the end of the, my first season and they had a non-winner's race and we went up and we, we won it pretty easy. And that was probably the thing that set me, you know, started building confidence. Um, we went to Florida that winter. We won a race down there. Um, and just those little things, you know, um, the little steps along the way is what, is what builds the confidence. What was the, uh, what was the track in Florida? Cause, uh, our buddy Mike Bruno told me about that once, but I he didn't tell me a lot, and I was waiting to ask you about that. It was it was Putnam County Speedway. Um, I don't even remember who put on the series, but it was a small block series. <clears throat> I think there was only five races. I don't think there was over maybe 15, 18 cars that went down. Um, Pete Bicknell went down. Um, so obviously he was the dominant force for all of us, but um, I remember – I, I believe Vince went down, Mike, myself. There was a lot of young guys that went down because it was just a great opportunity for all of us. And I I don't remember, but we were running like fourth or fifth in that race I won, and two or three of the guys took each other out, and here we were with one to go, and we were in the lead, and it was like, <laughs> what is this all about? You know, just, just didn't have a clue. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Um race with a lot of young guys down there, which was huge. You know, it didn't do us any good to go to – it did us good to go to Rolling Wheels to get lapped 10 times because we were racing with the best of the best. Right. Yeah. But it didn't do much for your confidence. Yeah. You know, it certainly helped you knowledge-wise, but it didn't help your confidence at all. So you needed to race with guys that you were more caliber with than than uh, some, of the, some of the better guys, so to speak. Trial by fire. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. So then, ninety-one, mm-hmm. uh, I'd say the confidence got a little bit higher because you guys won a lot at Cornwall and Frogtown. Yep, um, it did. Um, we started figuring things out. Um, get back to knowing who the right people are. You know, um, never met Bob McCready before. Bob McCready had raced at Cornwall quite a few times, and Jack had never been there. Um, they didn't understand how heavy the clay was um, up there. And it was just a total different atmosphere, a little quarter mile. Um, so Jack got in touch with Bob and Bob gave him a bunch of ideas for me to try and different things to use. And it was, it was huge right out of the gate. So just knowing those things, our motor program got a little better for the second year. Um, we were learning a little bit more about tire staggering, just setups, setups in general. Um, and it just, it kind of got better and better every week. What are you looking at when you go to a new track, new surface? What are you trying to figure out in, you know, limited practice time? Um, I think the biggest thing for me is I've always tried to figure out what similarity that track is to a track that I know, whether it's Cornwall, whether it's Malta, whether it's Rolling Wheels or Fonda or, um, even if you can say, well, turn one and two at Granby is similar to turn one and two at Fonda, which they're not, but you try to get similarities. 
Um, it's the same way with the track surface. Um, some place you go, the track is real slick right before warm-ups, and other places we used to go, the track was so heavy that you know you'd go through a whole pack of tear-offs in a heat race. Um, so you just, I, I've always tried to just get the similarities between different places. And even, you know, something Brett taught me years ago was even break it down corner by corner. You know, if turn one at uh, Fonda is similar to turn one at Middletown, well, then you can kind of address the same issues that you do. Um, you, you try to break it down as fine as you can. Because there's no two tracks that are remotely the same. Yeah, Fonda's not even like Fonda, right? No, no, that's different. Fonda's that's different from heat race to warm-ups to yeah. Lap three to lap seven is different. It's just a totally unique. Um, I think racing at Fonda over the years kind of, it helps with a lot of that versatility because it is so different. Every corner is different. Um, the surface changes very, very fast. Um, so it kind of makes you adapt. I, I feel like it, it helps you adapt to different places and different surfaces a little better. Yeah, for sure. Um, so God, it's amazing that you were a kid out there with Jack Johnson and Bob McCready telling yeah. how to do like, this is, there's not a lot of kids that have that opportunity. Were you, were you able to like, kind of step outside your own body and be like, holy crap, what, how are these guys helping me? Um, I, I was, um, in the sense when I did that, it made me appreciate their help more um, right from, you know, Jack helped Billy Decker when Billy was younger. So Billy and I became good friends um, through Doug Olson, which we ran Olson cars back then. I became good friends with Brett. Um, you know, the first year I met Syracuse, Brett comes over to my car after warmups and asked me how everything goes. And when he walked away, I'm like, wow, that's incredible. Like, yeah. why does this guy take five minutes to come see me? But it's, it's, it's their friendships. It's the respect. Um, I remember going to Rolling Wheels, uh, Wheat Sport, a lot of the big races. You know, my first two or three years, I think my first year, I think I ran first and second year. I think I ran on 18 or 19 different racetracks, just tried to get as much, as much racing as we could get in. Um, and back then you could run radios everywhere you went for big races. And I would always tell my brother, like, listen, if the leaders are on the same straightaway as me, I need to know because I want to get it out of the way. I don't want to be the guy that wrecks the first five place cars. Um, and then in respect, after doing that kind of stuff, you get the respect from a Bob McCready or an Alan Johnson or a Billy Decker. You know, they come over and they say, listen, we appreciate you, you know. Um, and then they start, once you start becoming friends with these guys, then they start giving you pointers. And, um that's just, you can't put money on that. You can't, I mean, that's just huge. It's huge. Um, but to me, it all started from, you know, from, from my relationship with Jack, you know, and everybody respected him obviously um, as a driver. Um, so, and Jack was old school. I mean, he was, he was certainly in his way. You know, I remember him telling me for years that I'll explain anything to you once I'll never tell you something twice because you're not paying attention. So, you know, which is, he was old and my dad was that way. You know, my dad would say, look, it just, you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. I, it's just the way it's always been. So, um, 
I, I think you, those being an old school type person, those other guys respected you more because of that. Speaking kind of making friends and branching out, and we've talked a lot about it a lot with stock car guys. How were you received when you guys started going regularly north of the border? Um, we were like going to Cornwall my first few years. Um, I was pretty gentle with, you know, I didn't know anything. I wasn't tried not to be a hammerhead. There was times that, you know, you were going to get into jingle with somebody, try to be respectful, um, to all the people. And we had a very good, uh, reception from everybody north of the border. Um, we went to Granby and raced there for a few years, won a couple championships. Um, we had a lot of friends. We, we had we had guys, drivers, and other crew guys that if we got – I remember one night we got wrecked in a heat race. It tore the whole header off the, the side of the car, and, and we had Luke Ponce guys, and we had Martin Roy's guys, and um, just a few other guys that had come over and helped us work on the car, and I, I couldn't speak to the people because they only spoke French. But we had all just became good friends um, just by being respectful on the racetrack. Um, I still, you know, have a lot of friends in Canada. Um, they're, they're great people. They just love racing. What drew you up there? And I know that you said that it's when you start, it's 50 cars at Malta kind of scares you away. I get that. Yeah. But yeah. once you're established and you're winning races, you you continue to travel. Why Why not? come home and beat those 50 cars when you clearly have a program that can. I think at that point was a lot of the connections you've made um, with the different people at Frogtown or Cornwall. Um, I mean, we were a regular at Frogtown the first three years. And I think my fourth season, maybe the fifth season, we would go to Can-Am for the first couple of shows. And that was five hours away for us yeah. one way. Um, and we won the first, I think we won the first two out of four races or something like that. Um, Timmy Fuller and I became good, very good friends and we stayed for the season for some crazy reason. It was a five hour ride. It was, it was a long grueling summer to go over there, but, um, I think the connections you make make a difference. Amen to that too. Yeah. We're, we're, we're at Malta and Devil's Bowl at that time. I didn't really have any, have any connections other than, you know, with Jack. Um, and you can also throw in the factor that. <laughs> I didn't get along very well with Bruce Richards. So um, him and I were like oil and water. He, he's a great guy. He was a great promoter. He probably could pair a racetrack better than anybody I've ever seen on a grader. But him and I just didn't, we didn't had eye to eye a lot of times. And he wasn't afraid to say it. And I wasn't afraid to say it. And that certainly didn't help. That didn't help either one of us out. So um, Bruce is definitely not afraid to say it. Well, and that's, you know, I mean, I, I've kind of always looked at like uh, the racers and the owners. Um, I don't think some of the promoters understand it, but Bruce definitely doesn't understand how much work and effort went in on the crew guys or an owner. You know, I've always said from day one that every owner should be let into the pits for free because without an owner, you have no show. And I, I've said that to every promoter that I've ever talked to, that I feel that that's a very strong point that you need these guys. You need these owners spending money because they said they're certainly not making any. So 
Um, so, you know, with, with Bruce and my uh, personality and relationship, you know, that's what kind of drove us to Granby. I wanted a place to go race big blocks on Friday night to, to up my big block program. So we've ventured off to Granby because um, Malta at that time was small blocks still. Was there any local push for you to come back to Malta or Devil's Bowl? And I know that you did it for one year, I think, yep. right, in the mid-'90s. Um, yeah, we did uh, We did a couple years. But it was probably a little later, later in the 90s. It, it was um, yes and no. A lot of my local fans, family and that kind of stuff from Fairhaven area, and, you know, um, they, of course, they wanted us back there because they didn't want to travel. Um, but for me, professionally, you know, I needed to be I needed to be at Granby on Friday nights racing big blocks. I needed to be at Weed Sport on Sundays racing big blocks. Um, we were trying to go to the next level. Um, and the small block deal, don't get me wrong, it's great. But when you're trying to go to Fonda and beat some of these guys in a big block, you need a ton of big block experience because it it's so different racing a big block versus a small block. So we needed, we needed big block track time at that time. And then I think it was in the late 90s, uh, we came back to Malta and Devil's Bowl. We won the overall championship a couple years in a row. I don't remember if it was 97, 98, 98, 99, um, something like that. But we had kind of established our program at Fonda, and we were just running close to home because it was it was easier for us at that time. Was it important for you guys to get those championship accolades? Um, it was. It was for me personally, and it was for my my brother and my dad, all of our crew guys. Um, you know, for us, I think I went two, maybe three years in a row at Fonda, going into the final night, either tied for points or you know within ten points of the championship. Um, one year I think was against Mike Romano. A couple of years was against Jack. Um, and, um, we ended up wrecking, we ended up, you know, I was the, I was the kid that was trying to win the race on the first lap. Um, I remember one night, Jay Castamore, who worked for Brett for years, he was the pit steward at Fonda. He came over jokingly told me and said, uh, either the trophy or the steering wheel. Well, on lap two, I caught the inside drain trying to go three wide on the infield. And I end for ended about four times and, um, you know, that it was a heartbreaking two or three years of really heartbreaking stuff. But as my dad says, all that stuff builds character. So, so <laughs> I should be steering. It was the steering wheel. Yeah, yeah. It was the steering wheel. Well, I walked up to the pet shack and I threw it in and Jay was about to cry. He's like, Buddy, I was just joking. I said, well, I was, too. <laughs> you know, things happen. That's just the way it was, you know, and Jack being the veteran, um, he just kind of, he laid back and did his deal and he took the lead on, on lap 20 and I was trying to get the lead on lap five, you know? So that's just, it's, it's lessons you learn. What is it like in your particular uh, perspective racing for a championship against Jack Johnson, who taught you just about everything? It's honestly, it's really bittersweet because, you know, you're racing against your biggest hero. You're racing against the guy that's taught you everything. Um, as Jack told me once, he says, listen, I've taught you everything, you know, not everything I know. So, um, but just, you have a really good friendship with him and all of his crew guys and stuff. And, and, um, 
I can remember the first championship we were in against him. You know, I was all pacing up and down pet road and he met me halfway down pet road. He says, listen, you need to go relax. You need to just do what you've done. You've won five races this year. Finally, you need to continue on doing what you've done all year. Um, and, and that's hard to do, obviously, um, because it's a mind game. It's a total mind game. Um, but um, it is the first year, um, the first year that I won the championship there, um, he called me the next morning, Sunday morning, he called me about eight o'clock at the shop and congratulated me. And that was probably one of my highlights in my racing career was just getting that call from him, you know, telling him he was proud of me and that kind of stuff. You know, it was just, it was, it was really cool. But then the bittersweet part is, is that, you know, I'm probably Jack Johnson's biggest fan and, and I just went out and beat him for a championship. So it's kind of, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of on one side, it's, <laughs> oh man, Jack lost the championship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you were the champion. <laughs> right, right. You know, so I, I, you know, it just, and that's, it's kind of hard to explain, but it was just, it's, it's a bittersweet thing and it's very yeah. cool. It's no, very, that is, you know, it's very cool. Yeah. Growing up as a young kid, never imagined that I would ever have the chance to even race at Fonda, never mind be competing against, you know, Louis, Lapey, you know, Mike Romano, Jack, and, you know, competing for championships. You know, it was it was pretty hard to pretty hard to swallow sometimes, honestly. But at that age, you don't think about it. You just, you know, you got one thing in mind, and you just you're going to try to get better and better and better. I think more about it now, obviously, that I sit back. But at that time, you just you just do what you got to do. Did kind of that relationship and his willingness to help you translate later when all of a sudden you were that guy. And there were young kids asking you questions. Oh, for sure. Um, and it even translated back to Jack. I remember there was a few times that you know Jack was struggling at Malta. Um, I don't remember even whose car he was driving, but he would call me on Saturday mornings and ask for shock setups and spring setups. And I can remember different time boxing up shocks and springs and sending them to him. And they were something experimental that we were trying with To. Um, you know, so you always try to return the favor. Um, a lot of the cars at Devil's Bowl, whether they were pro stocks, sportsmen, or modifieds, had Camaro Slate on the car because we were we were scaling cars for guys. We were, you know, um, doing their tires for them or, or setting them up with tires or just kind of whatever we could do to help guys out, um, just to try to return the favor. It's a very interesting position to find yourself in, I guess. Um, I mean, was it? was it intentional that you were helping everybody or uh, like, did you have a speed shop set up or was somebody one day was like, Hey, can you, can you do my tires for me? Yeah. We were just spread the rumors that, Hey, they're doing it. Let's bring them over. You know, we just, we just tried to be good friends with everybody. Um, I I can tell you there's different nights at any track we ever went to. Um, you know, if somebody got wrecked, my brother, Danny, Mm -hmm. um, he was working on their cars. Yeah. And I always said that if I was in the same wreck, they probably had, they were probably in quicker than I was. They got the work done in their car and I had to wait. Um, it was just, I think everybody, um, we've always tried to show everybody the respect that they've shown us. Um, like I was telling you about the story at Granby, you know, different guys over helping on our cars. It's that's just total. That's just out of respect. We've always just tried to, um, 
I, one year we were at Fonda and it came down to the final night of points. And that was Pat Ward, myself and Jack in the, in the, in the points night. And, uh, back then we had to park in the infield. So your trailers were out back in the third turn. So Pat went out for warmups and he had a carburetor messed up or something. So he said something to me about it. So I ran out in the trailer in between the races and got him a carburetor and put it on. And uh, I remember somebody saying to me, like, isn't he in the fight for the championship? Yeah. Well, then why would you lend him a carburetor? So why wouldn't I? Like, Pat would give me the tires off his car if I needed them, or Jack would. or And that's just, I can't say you're going to do that for everybody, but the guys that show your respect and that kind of stuff, you would you would do anything to help any one of those guys. Because, I mean... Face it, at the end of the night, there's 24 idiots out there with a helmet on trying to do the same thing, and that's all it boils down to. So, um, you just I I remember when I was a kid up at Airborne, uh, I think Chet Devarney and Ricky Dennis were fighting for a championship, and Devarney's car broke, and Ricky Dennis gave him his car to drive in the last race. It was like, yep. uh, okay, that's that's, that's how this cool. that's how this game works. It is. It is. You know, I mean, we're all staying in the driver's meeting or maybe, you know, after the races, I've always said there's, if there's four classes, there's four guys that left happy. Everybody else is upset because there's four winners and that's it. Um, And when you're at the driver's meeting, everybody's all business. But after the races, if you're sitting around shooting the breeze or if you're there on a Sunday morning waiting for the 200 and you got the grill going, you would do anything for each other. And it's, it's really pretty, it's a pretty unique sport. It really is. If you've got a home project going on, your first stop should be Barry Tile and Morrison Clark Incorporated. From flooring to kitchens, from bathrooms to outdoor projects, from your home to your business, they are number one in central Vermont. As you've heard on this show, Justin and I are officially middle-aged super dads now. And one of our favorite hobbies is looking at the Barry Tile Facebook page to see their latest projects. I love the carpeting and hardwood flooring, and he loves the kitchen countertops and shower installations. And it's true. Barry Tile has been family-owned for 50 years, and their experience shows in every single job. It's high-quality work by highly qualified people who can design and install everything you need to upgrade your home or office. It's not a big chain store. It's local people with common sense and a ton of skill. Be like us and check out the Barry Tile Facebook page to see some examples of their incredible work. Or you can give them a call at 802-476-0912. You can also stop into the showroom at 889 South Barry Road in Barry, Vermont, and tell them that the guys from Uncommon Deeds sent you. It's almost here. Winter is coming, and at least one New England snowstorm is going to knock your power out. When that happens and you're in the dark, you'll be wishing that you had called Bushy's Generator Sales and Service. So don't wait. Bushy's has been recognized as the number one dealer of Briggs and Stratton home standby generators in the state of Vermont, and they're also a leading dealer of Kohler generators. From sales and installation to service and maintenance on all makes and models of generators from 10 kilowatts to 200, Bushy's is the only call you need to make. And hey, racers, you know how important it is to have small portable generators at the track, and Bushy's has you covered there too. After all, they're racers too, and they know what you're looking for. Check out their selection of Briggs and Stratton inverters and have the power where you need it 
when you need it. Wayne and Ben Bushy have more than a decade's experience in this business, and Bushy's generator sales and service covers all of Vermont and New Hampshire, as well as Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. Give them a call at 802-591-1903 or visit their Facebook page or bushysgenerator.com. Bushy's generator sales and service of Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. We keep your power on. And now, back to our show. Was there ever anything uh, attached to you being from Vermont? Like, did was anybody ever like, oh, my God, there's this guy, he's an outsider. Like, did you ever experience any of that? No. Um, the only thing I could remember kind of about that was I talked to a woman at Syracuse one year, and she asked me what state Vermont was in. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of like. <laughs> I, I always say Boston. <laughs> I'm like, what state? It borders the state you live in. Like, obviously, she flunked the geography class, but um, excuse me. Um, no, not really. Um, we were, I don't know, with with the group of guys that we raced with, and and most of the fans, we were just accepted as just in any other. Whether you were from New Jersey or Pennsylvania, um, Vermont's never really had a big, um, all outsourcing to the big series around. Um, right. Exactly. Um, but they just, I, I don't know. Everybody treated me with respect and we tried to do the same. And I think that's really what mattered. Um, Did you so have a bit of pride then in being the Vermonter when there aren't others around? I did. I did. Um, probably Probably more so when I came back to Devil's Bowl after I traveled for so many years um, in in Malta as well because we were so close to home. When you're out on the road, it's a war. You're struggling. You kind of, you know, you don't even think about that stuff. But after we came back home, so to speak, um, and, and with the fans and all that stuff, that's that's really when it became big for me that it was nice to be from Vermont, back in Vermont, Um kind of representing Vermont, so to speak, at that time. It was it was pretty cool. So to finally win that championship, you know, the at Devil's Bowl or to win mm-hmm. a couple at Malta, you know, to be the CVRA overall guy. I mean, back then that was a big deal and it made it made you some money. You know, CJ mm-hmm. and Bruce paid pretty well. Yeah. Um, it was ten it was ten grand to win the overall back yeah, Absolutely. Then. Yeah. yeah. And you're beating Kenny Tremont, and you're beating Jack, and you're beating yep. you know huge names, Brett, yep. Um, yep. all these guys. Uh, that's a pretty good feather in your cap. It was. Um, it certainly helps with the confidence. It, it's kind of crazy how it all comes about. Um, you know, we switched to about probably a year and a half before that. We switched. To Bobby Hearn just started with Teo Cars. Um, and we bought one of the – he built four cars his first year, and we bought one of the four um, for Syracuse. And, honestly, Bobby's really what put me on the map um, as far as being competitive weekly. Um, once you start going places and you're competitive, and then you can start – you know, you you, you you beat Kenny and C.D. Koval at, at Devil's Bowl for a championship. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, it's a pretty great feeling. Um, for me as a driver, truthfully, then yes, it gave me confidence, but I think it's different for a driver. You, you, you try not to, you, you try not to let it get in your head where like my crew guys, they, you know, 
they they were in awe over it. Where I'm in awe over it now, and I was after I got done. But at the time, you just you really just try to stay focused, and um, it was great. Don't get me wrong; it was really great. Are and you- like the same, you know, winning the first championship at Fonda, um, beating Jack or beating Mike Romano. I think we won the first one against Mike. It was just it was you know almost like it didn't seem real for a few years. You know, are you a goals guy? We've talked to a few people, and it's varied, and we've heard they don't like to set goals because it limits their own expectations, mm-hmm. and some that I like to put something out there that I can shoot for, that I can strive for. Um, I would say I, yes and no. I'm a goals guy as far as um, I put a lot of pressure on myself. Um, I put a ton of pressure on myself. and. You know, I feel like if I finish fifth one week, then there's no reason I can't finish fourth. If I finish fourth, there's no reason I can't move up. Uh, Billy Pouch made the statement years ago that I've always remembered is that second place is the first loser. Um, So if you were able to win one championship, then why weren't you able to win 10? Um, As far as, you know, really to set out a goal and say at the beginning of the year, I want to win a championship. I think once you get to that caliber, um, where you're competitive, um, I think that's kind of the expectation you put on yourself and your crew puts on themselves. Um, certainly, there was times like, per se, we'd go to Syracuse and I would say, okay, if we finish at the top five, I will be pleased because we weren't very good there at times. Um, but to roll into Fonda on a Saturday night in the late 90s, early 2000, I, I was disappointed if we weren't in the top two or if we didn't win. Um, yeah. So I kind of, you put pressure on yourself to, to just do better and better, and better every week. You bring up Syracuse. And that's one thing I did want to ask you about was the USNA series in mm-hmm. 2000. And you did win at Syracuse mm-hmm. um, on paper. That tour was an outstanding concept, um, but it only lasted for a year and, and it was gone. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't even go a full season. They ended up pulling right. the plug. I think right. two races before it got done. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what what drew you to that? Um, the money. Um, Randy Ross. We were big in with Randy at the time. Randy Ross was very good friends with. Um, can't even think of his name, but he was the gentleman that ran wheels. Um, Randy ran wheels on his car for quite a few years. Um, he was the co-promoter with um dave panacci um for usna so randy had talked to me about it um i had kind of we went to granby that fall and we won the points um dirt says the points have to be over by labor day we go to granby on friday night we get rained out the lebanon valley 200 is the following weekend the race of Kings was Saturday. What's a hundred lapper for small blocks. The big blocks were Sunday for 200 lapper. Granby had announced that they were going to run a makeup show for the championship the following weekend. So I called a few of the guys in Canada and, and they basically said that it's not for the title. It's just an extra race. It's this, this, and this. So, well, long story short, they ran it and we lost the points because they ran a race. Um, I called all the guys from dirt. I still got 
back then I think it was three grand you got for if you won a championship, you got an extra three thousand dollar bonus from dirt. So I got the dirt bonus, but I missed out on the five thousand from Granby. Um, it was just kind of a shady deal, and it kind of left a little bit of a thorn in my side. Um, so dirt at that time didn't really back me up. Um, I called Glenn Donnelly at that time, probably 20 times, never heard back from him. Um, and I just kind of had that thorn in my side and, and USNA was coming along. They were paying way more money. They were doing more weekend stuff. Um, we were kind of getting bigger in business. So the bigger we got in business, it was kind of harder for me to be gone during the week. Um, so with those combination of things, um, we were, the, we were actually the first guy to, to, to join USNA. We, we paid our membership, membership fee the first. And it was a great series. It just they, they, too much money for, for what they got for response for, for fans. And good car counts, but they just didn't have the fans when they traveled. And yeah, so that, that Syracuse show that you mm-hmm. won, mm-hmm. Uh, everything that I've read and heard and seen about it, there was nobody there. Like nobody showed up to watch. I'm going to tell you, I don't know if there were 500 people there. Good God. That's the honest truth. Like, like as a driver, you look up in the stands and the stands are empty, like empty, empty, empty. That's how bad it was. Um, Why? It was in the spring. Um, it got rained out. We were supposed to run Saturday, I think. And we ended up running Sunday. Um, I don't know. I just, I don't understand it because, you know, Brett was there. I remember Jimmy Hart was there, Jack, um, Alan Johnson, you know, most of the, Billy was there. Yeah, what more do you need, right? All the guys that ran good at Syracuse were there. And um, I I don't know. I don't know why, but I was surely pleased when the, when the, when I got the check at it. And it didn't balance because I figured to myself, there's no way that this guy can pay 30 grand and have nobody in stands. Like, um, so I, I give him, I give Dave and uh, the other fellow, um, Mitchell, I think was his last name. I can't think of it, but they, they paid, they paid through the whole thing. Um, they did cut us a little short on point fund because they cut two races short. But they still paid, I think instead of a hundred grand for points, it was seventy-five. Jesus. And I ended up with like forty-five thousand for second points. Wow. So totally couldn't believe that they even followed through with the points deal because at that point they were they were broke. They were they basically said that they put up a million dollars and when the money was out, they were done. So and why at that point would you want to spend another quarter of a million? But they did. Their their word was great, and they they came through with it. That's amazing. Um, wow. I feel if it would have if it would have stayed, obviously it would have changed. Um, it would have changed the way things are today, you know, because they were paying big money back then. I don't think Syracuse was paying. I don't know what they were paying for cash back then, but you know, they had contingencies. You get a trailer and you get yep. prizes and you get this, but cash, I don't think was maybe 20 or 25 grand. It's kind of a shame, but they, they came through with their word. They followed through. Even if there's no fans, 
that's got to be gratifying to win on the mile, right? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, I, you know, when I first started going to Syracuse, we were fast. Um, we always had, you know, we always had a lot of help. We had, we had good motors, good cars. Um, we were always quick. We always time trailed in the top six of the small blocks. We were decent with the big block there, but the big block I kind of struggled with there because it was either you had a ton of power and you had no fuel mileage, or if you had fuel mileage, you had no, you had no speed. Um, where guys like Billy, um, Jimmy Horton, they were, they had fuel mileage and speed. Um, so for us going there and we had a couple years of boy, we, wrecked a lot of cars out there. Oh, that's all I can say. Um, so for us going there that year um, and to win, ended up being a fuel mileage game. Um, Jeff Trolley was second. I think Horton was third. We were all in the same boat for fuel. We there was My spotter was in the tower, and Kevin Enders was sitting next to him, who was my engine builder. And Kevin comes on, he grabs the radio and asks me when we were pitting. And I said, we're not. And he said, well, you're not going to make it. I said, well, I'm not stopping again. This is what I've got. And if we make it, we make it. If we don't, we don't. But there's no, there's no way I'm stopping again. Um, so luckily we made it. Um, literally, this, probably the last 15, 20 laps, you're riding around half throttle. There was only three of us on the lead lap. Um, so it ended up being a total fuel mileage game. But I, I don't care how you win at Syracuse. If you win, you win. So but it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. Um, pretty amazing feeling just to win there alone. I don't care if it's super dirt week or when it is, it's, it's pretty good feeling. Had you guys kind of started a family at that point? Yes. I had a, my oldest was probably maybe three at that time. How much did how much did family kind of impact those decisions on where you were going to go and when you were going to race as you start, you know, having kids that are older? It didn't really. Um, when my oldest was born, we were packed up and headed to Granby. And I had told the promoter, he had bugged me two years in a row for going up there. So I had given my word that we were going to come up and – I was pulling out of the driveway and my ex-wife came out of the house and said her water broke. And I said, no, I'm sure it didn't. I've got to go racing. Like this, this, this is baloney. So anyways, long story short, we go to the hospital and we have our first and we missed Grammy and Fonda, which were the openers that year. Um, and we ended up winning the points for both. Um, wow. I called Jack Saturday morning um, and said, what would you do? Like, you know, my kid is born. He was preemie. He was healthy, but he was still preemie. He was only four pounds. Um, Had to spend a couple weeks in the hospital. You know, my brother and my father were adamant. They wanted me to go to the track. And obviously, I wasn't really feeling it. I want to stay home. So I called him and and, – he gave me the old, and I use this all the time. What? How would this decision affect you in ten years? Do you think going to Fonda that one night is going to affect you in ten years, or do you think <laughs> being in the hospital with your newborn in ten years is going to affect you? And I still use that 
a lot of the stuff he taught me over the years, I still use it. Um, so I called uh, Ralph company at the time was running Fonda. So I called Ralph. He was all bummed out, wanted me to come race. And Jack called me Sunday morning and said, well, I don't know what's going on, but you know, somebody bigger and better than I do because there was no threat of rain. The feature was lined up on the front stretch and it started pouring and they got rained up. And because I was the previous champion, I got to start. So I started to race the following week from the rear. Um, so just kind of a cool story. Um, but even as you, as we went on, you know, we bought a toter. Um, so the family could go, we bought a motor home. So when we used to travel, we used to travel with about 10 or 15 people all the time, whether they were crew guys, whether they were, you know, we had a husband and wife that were second cousins of my dad. They, they went everywhere with us and cooked every race we ever went to. They were as big a part of the team as anybody. Um, so the kids, the kids went along with us. Um, and it, and as I got older, it became more of a decision. Um, I actually left Devil's Bowl towards the later years of my career. When I started racing Utica um, was because I couldn't bring my kids in the pits. In Where Vermont. a lot of the New York State tracks, you, you could as long as you signed a waiver. You yeah. had to have proof of health insurance and all that stuff, but Bruce was adamant it couldn't happen. So we packed up and drove three hours west because – the promoter allowed my kids to go into pits because my kids were a part of the team at that time. Yeah. In Bruce's defense, it's a state law in Vermont and it's a, no, it is. It's a pain in the ass. It is. <laughs> you know, it, it certainly is. And I, I wasn't upset with him, you know, I mean, believe it or not that time I wasn't. Um, but at that point in my career, my kids were a big piece. Um, sure. So I just felt like if they can't go in then we'll go somewhere where they can go. Um, Did your kids ever show any, passion or want to get behind the wheel um my son david is what is he now he's 22 um probably we ran go-karts for three years um we used to get up early saturday morning we'd go to balsam spa we ran on the asphalt there with a go-kart we'd get done at two and then i would drive our go-kart trailer to fonda Mm -hmm. and race fonda that night we raced for Prouties on Wednesday nights up in Plattsburgh. Um, he won. He won a pile of races with a go kart. Um, I've always said that. Talented wise, he's more talented than I am as a driver, without a doubt. Um, but we we kind of gave that up because he started into school with the stick and ball sports and all that, and I just kind of felt that was more important. You know, I, I told him, I said, you, you got the rest of your life to race. You're never going to get a chance to play baseball, basketball, football, and all that. Um, he raced snowcross for probably five years. He was he was very, very good at it. Um, and even some of my other kids, you know, um, I think my youngest son, I think if if um, I turned him on to it, I think that he would, he would be, he would love it. Um, but it's kind of one of those things that, I don't know. It's tough because racing is a great thing, but a lot of these older drivers you see, they, you know, they don't have a retirement. They don't have a pension fund. They don't have 
a lot of things that set you up for after racing. And, um, you know, if, if, if David had called me tomorrow and said, Hey, we need to go get a car for devil's bowl. We probably would scrape one up and go race, but he's got other things going on. And, and, uh, with me coming back, he's kind of been a big push of me coming back. Um, and I hope to maybe down the road, that'll lead him into something if he wants. There was a hot rumor a couple of years ago that you guys were looking for a sprint car for him. Um, the racing world is probably the best at rumors. Yeah. Um, I used to have a buddy of mine from Fairhaven. He's, I don't know. He passed a few years ago, but he was an elderly guy. And he used to do come carpentry work for me at the quarry every once in a while. And he says, you mind if I go get a rumor started at Devil's Bowl? I mean, <laughs> this guy, he loved it. He loved it. And the people loved it. Um, no, we've, we, David and I have talked about it a few different times, um, but never really been. He's more of a businessman. Um, he likes to have his fingers in everything that's going on as far as business-wise. So I don't even know if he could really focus 100% of his time to a race car and be – because, I mean, face it, you know, um, without my family, my brothers, my dad, um, all the guys that I had working for me at Slate Quarry, if they weren't there, I couldn't go racing because you just can't do both. You, when you're racing, you're totally, you have to be totally disconnected from everything to have your focus and your mindset on what you're doing. So if it wasn't for a hundred percent of those guys taking up the slack while I was gone, I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, and I'm just not sure that, you know, um, like I said, David's a businessman. He, he likes to make money. He likes to think about making money. Um, and we all know that that's the last thing you're going to do in racing. <laughs> Always had kind of a funny story. How do you make a little money in racing? You start with a lot. That's right. That's the way it works. Is business and money and all that what got you out of racing? Um, I was in the middle of a divorce. That certainly didn't help. Um, we were kind of being stretched as a family in different directions. Really took my focus off things. We were definitely getting bigger in business. Um, I think at the time when I got done, we were up to probably close to 50 employees. Um, and I had to put more hours in. My kids were getting older. Um, something a lot of my, and my crew guys were all young, so they didn't understand this, but my kids were getting older. So I'm taking a night off to go coach T-ball or, um, so I wasn't in the shop as much as I was five years before, um, just because I was being spread so thin in with business money wise, that was a huge piece. Um, our business has been great, but. When I first started racing, all of my family lived with my dad. So we had one family to feed. Well, after 20 years of me racing, now I have a family. My brother has a family. My other brother has a family. My sister has a family. So now our business is feeding five families plus a race team. And it just, it wasn't there. It's just the money, the money wasn't there. Um, and we kind of have a theory that if, if we don't do something 110%, that I'm not going to do it at all. It's just the way it has to be. Um, so there was three or four things that kind of added up into me getting done. Any regrets, for lack of a better word, in that decision? Um, or did you um, make the right decision? No, I regret it every day. Um, 
obviously for my kids and, and what I had to do for my family, it was the right regret. Um, you know, the last 10 years, 12 years, you know, I've, I've coached youth football. I've coached baseball. I've, we've traveled to Tennessee and North Carolina. We've traveled all over the East coast playing baseball and, and you know, my oldest playing basketball and, and cheerleading with my daughter. Um, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't take any of that back for any amount of money. Um, I do kind of regret just totally walking away from the sport. Um, the biggest regret I have is the friends that I made over the years because the first Saturday night that I didn't race, I'm sitting at the house wondering, all right, <laughs> what do normal people do? Because this just. This your fingernails off. Yeah. 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 You know, and it's, it's, it's not even about the competitive side of racing. It's, it's the friends you made, you know, 20 years at the track is, is a long time to spend with the same people. And you become very, very good friends with all of them. It's literally like having withdrawals. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I'm not going to lie to you. Um, they had, they had a benefit race for Jack. After I got done, I went to that. Um, we were in Florida one year and my brother was helping Matt Shepard. So we went to Volusia two nights in a row. The kids wanted to go and maybe one other race at Fonda. And that's honestly the only race in, that I've been to over the last 10 or 12 years, just because it was, it was tough. It really was. It was tough. Uh, it was tough being away from it. You know, it's kind of like the alcoholic doesn't go hang around at the bar, even though he's drinking water. <laughs> you just don't do that. Was it you tough know? for you when you went to go and not be going to get in a car or to smell was, the fumes? It, it, it was tough. Thankfully my kids were there. So they were all involved with, well, dad, you know, what does this do? You know, it was kind of like a teaching thing for them at the same time. So it kind of kept my mind off it. Um, but it was, it's, I, I'm not a very good spectator. Um, even when my son raced go-karts, I'm not a great spectator. Like, you know, I was talking to him through his helmet more times than not, you know. Um, <laughs> that's just the competitive side to you, you know. Um but I'm not going to lie, this summer going back to the track, I started going back to Fonda this year, um, connecting with a lot of the old friends that I had. It's, it's really been, it's been pretty incredible. It's been a long time coming, so to speak. So now 2023, you're driving for West Moody, mm-hmm. going back to Fonda where you, you know, it's the track of champions and you are yep. a champion there multi-time. Yep. How has the response been since, you know, it's only happened in the last couple of weeks that, that the news has kind of filtered out. Yeah. Um, but how's, how's that been for you? Oh, it's been good. A lot of people were very positive. Um, very happy. Um, most important thing to me is my kids are all, they're ecstatic about it. And that's kind of. For, for what it's worth, we had reached out to you to do this before we knew that you were coming back racing. Like yes. we were interested. And yes. then that happens. Oh, great. The timing's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, going to the track this summer and talking to a lot of different people, um, the word had come up a lot during the summer. Um, a lot of positive feedback from different owners. Um, we kind of had a deal tied up and it just fell through for, for different reasons. Um, so I was kind of bummed. I'm not going to lie to you. I was kind of bummed when that deal fell through because I'm thinking, mm, I've been out of it this long. No one's going to want to hire me, so to speak, you know? Um, 
and then just happened to be Wes was looking for a driver and we were looking for a ride and just kind of it seems like uh, a pretty perfect fit you know are you anxious are you anxious excited nervous all Um, the above i'm excited i mean she would think it blow the snow off the place tomorrow i'd go run laps if i could um but i'm 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 very realistic so i had a chance i had uh, an owner wanted to go race malta a couple times this fall with a car and i'm like no i need track time i need to go sit in a car they wanted me to run the fonda 200 and i'm like no i need track time i need time to get myself prepared i need to get in shape i'm not 20 anymore so obviously i need to work at getting in shape um all of that stuff needs to happen so with this with that being said this spring is kind of a better fit for me because i get time to get myself in shape get my mind back where i need it to be um so I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I'm extremely anxious. I'm an anxious person anyways, because I put pressure on myself. Um, I just, I want to get in the car as soon as I can. And if I could turn 500 laps before the Fonda opener, I would do it. It's probably not going to happen, but I would do it if I could. Uh, Cause that's what I need. I need, I just need seat time. You know, I'm, I'm basically for better lack of terms, I'm starting all over again. So it is probably, Worse than that, because these new cars are so different than anything I'd ever drove before. Um, so I've got to almost forget 90% of what I've learned as a setup guy and start over. Even like the big race. All right. Yeah. And even, and, and Mimi's 100% right. Um, they've changed the Fonda a lot compared to what it was years ago. There's sure. more bank into it. Um, the quarters are changed. Um, so it's going to be. It's, it's going to be a, um, a lot to adapt to. Well, so another thing that you'll have to adapt to is that this car is 24, not 26, right? Yes. Yep. And it's not going to be, I would assume that it's not going to be red and yellow and purple. It's going to be nope. whatever Wes has it. Yep. Black blue and blue. black. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Is that strange for you? Um, No, because I kind of thought over the summer that I don't care if someone had a pink car and they named and numbered it, whatever. If it was fast and they wanted me to drive it, I'll drive it. Um, It is going to be different because we've always been red and yellow. um, 26, I mean, that's, you know. But for me now, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter. I think it probably bothers a few of my fans. And maybe my kids are, you know, it's not going to be 26. I said, well, I look at it like it's Jack Johnson times two. It's 24. Exactly. So that's kind of, I've made that joke the last few weeks. And that's you just, go. you know, so. Um, put a little plus two next to the number. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, or, or Jack and Ronnie times, you know, I don't there you know. Go. It's just yeah. whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> honestly, that stuff is never really, you know, um, Obviously, we were 26 over the years, but if there was a reason we would have had to change, I don't think it would have bothered me. Probably would have bothered more other people, but I just kind of go with the flow when it comes to that kind of stuff. Plus, I feel like it gives a real true fresh start vibe to it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Um, It's kind of a weird deal. Um, I've known Mike Prati my whole life. I've known Mike Watts. I've known so many people from Plattsburgh. I knew Sonny Moody 
Wes's brother because he Buzzy drove for him for a few years at KM over to the fire trail. So I knew Sonny fairly well, but I've never met Wes Moody. Heard stories after story after story about him over the years, but I've never met him up until a couple weeks ago. Um, but he seems very old school. He, uh, I mean, he's 80, 84 years old. Mm-hmm. He still works on the car every night, every day. Um, he's kind of cut from the same cloth my dad was from. And kind of myself, he's old school. You know, he, he's got terrific equipment. Um, and he's, he's totally on board with let's go find a track and let's go turn some laps and let's get, um, you know, um, he's a realist, but yet he wants to win too. So I, I truthfully think it's going to be a great fix uh, yeah. for both of us. Uh, he won a race with Nick, uh, Nick Haywood driving this year. Yeah, right? last year, um, yeah. Or this I mean, year, yeah. And he's the guy that they named the Moody Mile after, which is kind of cool, right? Uh, how do you get cooler than well, that? Yeah, and that's another story. I never knew that until this year. Always wondered why they call it the Moody Mile. I just figured because the track was like a moody old woman and it would kick your ass every time you went out. That's, <laughs> that's what right. I always figured. You know what I mean? Just, <laughs> that's the way I always felt about the place. Um, but that's a pretty outstanding thing to have the Moody Mile named after you. And now I get to drive for the guy. I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy. It really is if you think about it. It's he, it's he cool. used to he used to race with Richie Evans and beat him and Jerry Cook and yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. It is very cool. Um, yeah. I think he said he started racing in 1957. Yeah, and he's still doing it now. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Like, you know, so um, it, it's it's truthfully an honor for me to race for him, um, just because of who he is and how far he's come over the years and where he started from. And, you know, I mean, I don't care what anybody says. When those guys raced those old coupes, they were race car drivers. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. Jack Johnson used to always tell me, you're a real driver when you get out of the car after a 200 lapper and your hands are bleeding because you don't have power steering and you don't have gloves on. Th- those guys, you know, the Allens or, or uh, A.J. Foy, they, you know, those guys, they were – Far and above and beyond. And listen, I'm not cutting anybody down from today, but I'm just saying that some of them old jalopies they drove, I don't know if any one of us would drive it up and down a street just for fun. Never mind go around Syracuse at 100 miles an hour. You get hurt looking at it. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm going to, I will guarantee you one thing that for Wes driving over 100 miles an hour at Syracuse, I'm sure it felt a lot worse than any speed I ever went with the cars I had to go to Syracuse with, you know, we were all aerodynamic. We, you know, we had, we balanced our wheels and tires and, you know, I'm sure back then they didn't even do that. They threw them on and the way they went. So I'm sure that hundred miles an hour was pretty sketchy. (laughs) Yeah. But it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool deal how sometimes things come full circle. Time for the Barry tile quick hitters. And then we will let you go. First up, what was the craziest road trip you ever had to or from a racetrack? Uh, Eldora. I don't remember what it was, but it was, I hadn't run a big block for three, four years. I had one left in the shop. We decided on, I think, Thursday that we were going to go to Eldora on Tuesday or something like that. So we put a big block in a car and we, uh, we loaded everybody up 
we brought the motor home, the hauler. We had a guy drive for us, and it was a party all the way out and a party all the way back. And like I said, I had younger guys, so they partied, believe me. Um, <laughs> but it was a pretty wild trip, just going to Eldora. Always wanted to race there. Um, it was just a pretty, pretty cool thing. How'd you do? Um, I don't remember. I think we were 10th. We, we drew the pole. Um, I think I won a heat maybe we drew the pole and ended up 10th. I think is what we ended up. So it was good. Just going to Eldora, just had no expectations. I just wanted to get in the show. Um, dumbest thing I did was I asked Billy for advice and Billy said, follow me in warmups and, you know, Billy ran about four laps wide open without lifting. And I almost put it in the wall because I was following him. So, you know, that was kind of a, <laughs> not a very smart thing to do, but that's what happens sometimes, you know. Love it. Yep. Uh, what's the dumbest thing you ever did in a race car? Boy, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I can narrow that down. Um, Probably stuff at Syracuse, getting into wrecks, being in the wrong place, you know, making a decision and it was wrong and you end up on your lip. Um, I had a car at Syracuse, a black car we built for, especially for Syracuse. Bobby Hearn built for me and I raced it five times and put it on its lid four times. Jesus so it wasn't, wasn't a very good record for that car. It was the only black car wow. I ever drove. So, yeah, it was bad. It was uh, the guys in the shop always joke that. Bobby put the roll cage on the wrong side of the two by fours. <laughs> God, that's, that's yep. pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Did anyone ever try to get you in a car with fenders? Nope. Um, my brother Danny and I had honestly talked one time, maybe 10 years into my career. We honestly had thought about buying a Bush North car. Um, there was a few guys around, um, that we're kind of doing that. And we really, um, we gave it a big push. Um, but my problem was, is I just, I didn't know the right people to talk to, to get started in it. I would say one point in time, I was going to buy a sprint car. I drove a guy's sprint car at, um, Glen Ridge. Absolutely loved it. We were going to, we were going to sell the modifieds. We were only racing a couple nights a week and we were going to buy a sprint car and, um, you know, I called Jack and Jack hooks me up with, um, Who's that? Was it Dean no, well, I talked to Dean Reynolds and the guys from, from ESS, but, um, geez, I can't even think of him. He's the, one of the PA guys anyways. Um, but, you know, I talked with him for three or four weeks. You just, it, it, I kind of always felt like if you didn't have those connections, um, it's tough to get in without connections you know yeah yeah and no fun to run 20th no no for sure well man um it was quite the surprise to hear that you were coming back this year um but i think it's one that uh, or, or i guess next year but i think it's a surprise that everybody was hoping for um for years and years so mm-hmm. congratulations on that and uh good luck to you thanks for doing the show with us oh, i appreciate it um I'm excited. I, I'm excited to get back to Fonda. I'm excited to get on the road. Um, Wes wants to do 10 shows of the short track super series. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm excited to do that. Um, they're going to go to Granby this year to go up and see some old friends. Um, it's it's going to be a fun year, no matter what. Um, 
we're going to work our tail off, but no matter what, I'm going to have fun with this one. Get your autograph pens ready. Yes, sir. Yep. All right, Dave Camara. Thanks again to Dave for coming on the show. And like we said, it ended up being a little bit cooler and a bigger deal than we originally thought with his announced return. And I think I saw him post and you do yourselves a favor, go check out his racing Facebook page. They do a good job kind of updating. And I know he said they kind of have an idea where they're going to be and Fonda and doing a little series, but he did say that they're going to attempt to get to devil's bowl at least once this year. Yeah. Well, the Brett Deo tour, the, the short track super series does come, come through devil's bowl once. And, um, you could tell that he was excited about that. And if you look, like you said, it, Dave's, uh, it's Dave Camara racing 26 or 26 racing, something like that on Facebook. You'll find it. Um, we've shared it. Yeah. They're excited about the devil's bowl show as they should be. That's a homecoming and that'll be real cool. And not only that, um, his car owner, Wes Moody, he raced there when devil's bowl first opened in 1967. Like he was, he was on the original track and, Raced on the original asphalt track after that. And um, so it's going to be a, a homecoming in a couple of different ways. Um, so that's exciting. That'll be cool. Make sure you are following us on all the socials, Uncommon Deeds on Twitter and Facebook, Uncommon Deeds Podcast on the Instagram. The Instagram. If you want to be a part of this crazy family and sponsor this show, uh, no fouls, the new sports order podcast. You can email us uncommon media VT at gmail.com. Go to bed, Tom. And if you have a chance, I will say, go check out, please. The no fouls podcast. Oh man. Uh, I'm pretty proud of the first three episodes of that show. And our last episode with coach Uda Otley, uh, just created an absolute dynasty at CVU with that girls basketball program. And she had some unbelievable stories about, you know, tearing her ACL in 1986 and telling her therapist, I need to be back for the start of the season in five months and and went on to win player of the year. The doctor telling her father, you know, father asked, is she going to play basketball? Is she going to be able to play her senior year? <laughs> Doctor's like, eh, let's th- let's try to teach her how to walk again first. <laughs> yeah, and then it she is. played her whole senior year. <laughs> As someone who has had their knee done from a torn ACL, it is listening to her story. It is a completely different world of that repair in 1986. But mm-hmm. went on one player of the year in Indiana in, in high Indiana. school. And that is peak, like prime Larry Bird, Bobby Knight with the Indiana Hoosiers. Went on. Cases were starting to get hot. Yeah. Went on, played at Dartmouth, led them to four Ivy League championships, bounced around, ended up with CVU and created, like I said, a quite a little dynasty. And I'm very proud of that conversation because it was kind of the first real guest where I didn't have a ton of background and I hadn't really talked to him that much, but well, thankfully because she had such a 
fantastic career. I was able to do quite a bit of research, but I was very excited how that episode came out. So I listened to that show and I texted Tom like immediately and I said, no fouls is going to end up bigger than uncommon deeds. And I believe it. I don't think Tom believes it, but I believe it. Um, Cause there's a hell of a lot more high schools and basketball families than there are racetracks and race cars in Vermont. Um, and the stories are as compelling as I think the ones that we get here on this show um, with a much broader web, if you will. Uh, it's You're building something special there and, I'm, I'm very, very much removed from it. <laughs> I, this is all you, you know, it's, it's our, it's our company, uh, but it's, it's your baby. And I'm, I'm super proud of you. It's, it's cool. It's really a very enjoyable show, but do us a favor, check it out, share it, let everybody know, like the Facebook page, no fouls pod. And yeah, spread the word this week. Uh, Nick Foster. Coach of the Montpelier Solons boys basketball team, fresh off a championship last season, joins us on the show. Once again, guy with some cool stories, helped with the Vermont Frost Heaves. So check it out. That comes out every Wednesday. Right on. That wraps up today's show. You've been listening to the Uncommon Deeds podcast, a production of Uncommon Media. Poor guy. <laughs>